Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Downton Abbey, the official podcast. I'm your host, Anita Rani, and each week we're exploring a different area of the Downton world in anticipation of the upcoming movie, Downton Abbey, A New Era. Last week, we explored what this new era had in store for our beloved characters. And this week, we're taking a closer look into the world and the time in which Downton is set. We'll be looking at history, politics, culture, which encapsulate stories of emancipation, war, inequality. These are stories that have shaped our world today. And they are used brilliantly by writer Julian Fellows to shape the stories of our characters at Downton. They're realising quite young that... This isn't enough for them. And and actually, it's the First World War that we saw in season two. It gave the women purpose. To try and organise a life that wasn't a semi-denial of your own identity took great bravery. Don't pity these people. They're doing very well, thank you very much. They've got good jobs. A theme that's been analysed time and time again with increasing layers of complexity is class. The worlds of those above stairs and those below and what this historic social system means for everyone as individuals. In this next movie instalment, the class divide comes under further scrutiny when some new guests arrive at the castle. New guests of the Hollywood actor type. Well, I quizzed show creator and writer Julian Fellows on this latest development and what it might tell us about our current ruling family of Downton. Downton, the family, the Crawleys, uh, although a nice family and perfectly pleasant people, the fact is they are still creatures of their own time and class. And so they live within the prejudices and the, and the rules that they've been brought up with. And the, the actors challenge that. They do. And that happens. We see their kind of class and their the way they view themselves challenged quite a lot. In the previous film, it was with the royals turning up. So we see that, OK, they're not the top of the tree. And here we have Hollywood royalty turning up who can be from any class, and yet the servants still have to treat them a certain way. Well, so, and, the, and the Hollywood star guy yeah. says to Thomas, he says, look, I've lived out of England for 12 years. I don't care about that stuff anymore. So, but, so, you know, let's talk about class. There was one line that Maggie Smith said, I think, who was she talking to? Was it Edith, who was um, being doubtful about herself? And she said... Something along the lines of don't doubt yourself because that's very middle class. And I remember thinking... Lack of confidence is very middle class. Lack of confidence is very middle class. Well, I think Maggie has a clearer understanding because she grew up in a slightly simpler era Mm. than the modern world of the expectations of privilege that, of course, if you are born 
high-ranking and with a lot of money and you live in a very grand way and everything else, there are many advantages to that. But the disadvantages are that you must fit in, you must conform, you must do your job. I mean, there's another line when she says to Robert, people like us are not unhappily married. And he says, but what if we are, Mama? And she says, in that case, the couple concerned are unable to see as much of each other as they would like. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion because there could be no such thing as divorce. Yeah. And, you know, all of these rules and people forget that. I mean, now, if you're born great and your father is a duke and there's plenty of money. On the whole, you can just tear around London, going around corners on two wheels and have a good time. And, and apart from figuring reasonably often in the Daily Mail gossip column, there's no other price to pay. But, but that wasn't true then. Now let's take a moment to rewind and spend some time with a character that's been questioning the class system from the very beginning. Tom Branson, played by Alan Leach. Tom arrived in season one and as an Irish Republican, it became clear that his views of class and aristocracy weren't quite aligned with the status quo of Downton. Because you play... Um a political character at the beginning who does have this journey of growth and kind of questions of his own values and all the rest of it. Do people ask you about that? Do people say, oh, well, like I'm going to ask you? I mean, it wouldn't really play out like that in real life, would it? No. I mean, that is it's total fantasy, his storyline. It is fantasy. But what was nice was the idea that he did manage to almost break the system a little bit by getting Sybil to, you know, to like that relationship and the fact that getting her to... Well, she naturally had her own independence as well, and that's what he was so attracted to. But the idea that he kind of upset the system a little bit and then suddenly got kind of enveloped by it. I don't I don't think, number one, the family would have been so welcoming. Uh, like when the wife died, I think it was going to be like, see ya, we're keeping the kid. Yeah, 100%. You're gone. Yeah. Uh, but there is a sense that obviously when Julian writes these characters, they are much kinder than they may have been in reality. I mean, there are stories about people of like the landed gentry and how they actually treated staff. There's a famous story that one lord insisted that if they were on the same corridor, they had to turn to the wall because he didn't have to look at them. But I don't think that would have played out very well for Downton, would it? <laughs> if Carson had to suddenly look at the wall and not like make eye contact, it, it would have been, wouldn't have been as much sympathy maybe for the upstairs. Yeah, completely. And, you know, but it's really important to kind of talk about the reality. And yeah. you're right, there's no... Probably no way. Obviously, maybe there's the odd person who has that much humanity in them that would have accepted the chauffeur that eloped with his youngest daughter and then got her pregnant and then yeah. comes back. I mean, yeah. maybe somebody would have done that. Comes Reality. back and goes, actually, do you know what? Do you want to run the estate? You yeah. seem like a nice, trustworthy guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would have taken the kid and you would Take have... Taken the kid and probably send it back to Ireland so he could get beaten but or arrested or whatever. You let's talk about social mobility because you yeah. do, as well as kind of all the crisis of what's going on and all the rest of it. You still manage to go from downstairs to upstairs, mm. and that in itself is what's so brilliant about this whole program is the understanding of those two worlds. Yes, I mean, what as you see it, what are the differences and what are the similarities? Well, the similarities are they neither of them can exist without the other. And the acceptance, and it, I've always found this fascinating, is the idea of like a life in servitude at the time, like they didn't even think themselves we can go past this. The idea of becoming head butler was the ultimate goal. There was no idea of, well, 
I'm as equal to him. It was literally because of how you're born and what you're born into as well. And that was kind of, it, it's, it's, it is fascinating that even today, and if you look at the royal family, in a way, that sense of, you know, the entitlement of just purely because of you're born into this world and therefore there is a set world and there's a set establishment that still exists where those values and traditions are still held. Yeah. And, and, and even public school and like the whole British system is, is still, it's changed obviously, but Downton is kind of a, an example of what it was like back then when the social rules had a weird acceptance within all of the classes and how they were kept there. And, and that's what I loved about Tom, where he was like, uh, no, what about, no, <laughs> you know? And the great thing about Downton is watching this world constantly change and people trying to hold on to them and other people trying to let go. And interestingly, it's some of the people downstairs, like Carson, who just doesn't want to let go. In a, in a way, his whole life is about maintaining tradition, maintaining this, the status quo, as it was back then. Head of the Crawley House is our Lord Grantham, the person ultimately responsible for upholding traditions and the proper order of things. However, as the world moves around him, I asked Hugh Bonneville about conservation versus survival for Robert Crawley. We are keeping up with them. We love them. We love the twists and turns. But your character, Lord Grantham, he's having to keep up with everything that's going on under his feet, under his nose, with his daughters, his wife, his mother, you know, the whole thing. And you are a character who's set in your ways. You're born into this world. You know, you're the custodian of this great title and property, and yet you're having to adapt at every turn. Mm. And your character has to kind of go with it and change. And it's it's incredible. He's like a sort of... Uh... I was thinking of him as a sort of oil tanker that has to be slowly but surely turned in a certain direction and eventually he gets there, usually with the, the women as the tugboats, you know. And there's no less true than, than in, this, in this film, you know, at the beginning when he says, you know, I'm not having some ghastly moving picture made at, uh, made at Downton. He thinks that, you know, cinema's a very suspicious enterprise, very strange. And, um, and then Lady Mary literally takes me up to the attics to look at the drips in the roof and the buckets that are put there every night and he has to concede that actually maybe they do need the money. <laughs> well, at least, you know, I think he's got... I mean, I love every character, but with Lord Grantham, it's so interesting because he is, like I said, born into this incredible wealth and privilege and it's all he's known. And he could either kind of live that life and kind of live it to the end of his days and be set in his ways and this is how I do it and this is all I know and this is the right way to do it because of the privilege. But he has this interesting character, his wife, who is American, who comes from a completely different world. We know the reasons he married. He married her for the money and that happened a lot, but they fell in love. But how much has she kind of helped to open his eyes to the fact that he has to adapt? I think that well, that's what's been rather interesting about the whole dynamic. As you say, the buccaneers, the those American heiresses who came over and basically, you know, it was, it was cash for honours. He would get a nice title and cash a big for house. Cash <laughs> um, Yeah, get a title and uh, a big house and in return for a nice little pot of cash that will help the estate survive. But I think what, uh, I, I th you know, this is what I think has always been the, a nice engine for the relationship and for the show in a way, is that she is an outsider, so she does have a different perspective. Had the character just been, you know, an English heiress or whatever, or an English um, aristocrat, it wouldn't have had that uh, sense of uh, otherness that, that she brings to it. She can actually look on this society and actually question it and go, 
you crazy, you know. So that, you know, I think I think that's been a been a, gr- a great dynamic, and he does have to accept change. And her relationship with Violet as well, because Violet would not have accepted her easily, you know, the dowager. No, quite possibly not. No, you're right. There is, I mean, foreigners are are very strange things to to someone like Violet, um, because then <laughs> they're outside her comfort zone. I always thought this family might be approaching dissolution. I didn't know dissolution was already upon us. Does Robert know? No, and he isn't going to. Of course, it was terribly wrong. It was all terribly wrong, but I didn't see. What else? Please, I can't listen to your attempts to try and justify yourself. I know this is hard for you to hear. God knows it was hard for me to live through. But if you expect me to disown my daughter, I'm afraid you will be disappointed. Here's the magnificent Elizabeth McGovern telling me about how she interpreted these challenges for Cora Crawley and what she's learned over the years from playing her. So why do you think Cora was able to adapt so well? In the first series, it's implied that she'd had quite a tricky relationship with her mother-in-law, the dowager, Mm, because she was American. And, you know, you don't come from the background that she probably would have wanted for her son, even though you come with the great wealth, which saved Downton. Yeah, so why do you think she stuck it out? What was it? How did she adapt? What was it about her personality that meant that she actually thrived in that environment? (laughs) You know, I I, I think she was just a person that... um, decided to um, handle things with grace and patience and just, you know, stuck it out. I don't know if it's any more complicated than that. I think that's what's so much fun for both Hugh and I, actually, or for all the characters in the series, that you get a chance to watch your character grow over the course of such a long time. I mean, I've been used to doing just plays and movies in which there's a very limited arc and then you leave your character and that's the end of it. But to actually, for me to watch my daughters mature and become women and for me to grow and negotiate all the things that come up in the course of a marriage next to Hugh in sort of real time is is quite an amazing opportunity. It's it's really an experience. And especially to be doing it with something that is so successful. I guess that's why it's, it's lasted yeah. and lasted. It appears that especially the ladies upstairs, I mean, their job was just to get changed and go to dinner. Yes, indeed. That was it. Yeah, they would change four or five times a day. Goodness me. Yeah. Just another one. I mean, it is another world, but very difficult for a modern woman to get her head around, isn't it? It is difficult for me. Tell me more. Why? Well, I I felt at times a real visceral sense of the passivity and lack of power. And and it was tough over the years. It would sort of get really frustrated. There's nothing that Cora has any control over, not her money, no decision in her life. And even... When her girls grow up, they take control of the running of the house and all of that. And to her credit, Cora accepts that gracefully. But I would often feel like I'm just a person in a straitjacket, just literally just doing nothing all the time. Yeah. No. But that I think that was very accurate to what they would have expected from themselves and from life. And like I say, it's really hard to put a modern 
yeah it is head on it to is. what that and it must have been yeah. so suffocating it is actually it's it's um you, you sometimes feel like there's no there's no voice here yeah um, no agency. but i think that's that's yeah precisely and also you're right and she's the one who's come with the wealth it's her money yeah and yet it's going it's i mean good. that's the opening premise God's isn't it sake. if we don't find a partner for the daughter then the money will go to whoever yeah. takes over the... Yeah. I mean, it's so mad to think about. Yeah. I mean, especially for an American. Yes, indeed. But then she channels it through her daughters, doesn't she? Because they find their voice. And it's and interesting, it, she's always very supportive to them yeah. and always encourages them to play an active part in the world yeah. in different ways. Yes. Yeah, they're different women to what I, as Cora, was and would ever expect to be. These daughters, Mary and Edith, have been on incredible journeys. Lady Mary is the eldest of the Crawley children, and with no male siblings, she took on the running of the estate, defying every convention that has come before her. Her sister, Lady Edith, who was somewhat overlooked when she was younger, has grown up to be a force to be reckoned with as a journalist, mother and advocate for equality. I asked the two sisters about what the evolution of their characters might tell us about the women at this time. Here's Michelle Dockery on Lady Mary. What is the job of women of that time in the aristocracy other than yeah. marriage yeah. and getting dressed for dinner? Yeah. I mean, I'm like, the purp- what is the purpose? And it's, it's kind of fi- the watching you all evolve to find your purpose that is kind of kept us all hooked absolutely and and there is there are lines in that first series where you know edith and mary say things like you know this is all we do we just get dressed for dinner we pay calls and that's it that's we go and visit people and you know and it's not a life for them they're realizing quite young that this isn't enough for them and and actually it's the first world war that we saw in season two it gave the women purpose when they suddenly felt that they were what else are they going to do? They needed to somehow become involved and to help during the war. And that's what, you know, from there on, it then gave women the independence and the opportunity to look at their life and, and say, actually, I'm. this isn't enough for me. I, I don't have a purpose just sitting sitting around in a nice There's <laughs> nice nothing house. glamorous about no, it, is there? As no. modern women who have careers like all of them. Yeah, like, it's boring. You know, so they're boring. bored. And and I think that first series really showed that in those in the girls, is that they're bored, and especially Sybil. She was the first one to say, I just don't want this. I want something more. Well, that's why you were so keen to shack up with that hot guy yeah. from <laughs> Turkey. <laughs> Mr. Pamuk. Absolutely. Poor Mr. Pamuk. Yeah. <laughs> I was just asking in an interview, if you could change anything that Mary, you know, any actions that she's taken in her life, what would it be? And I said, probably not sleeping with a, with a Turkish diplomat because it really got her into a lot of trouble. I Good mean, honor, Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, she fancied him. and You knew was, it wasn't going to be your average series when he died and he died whilst trying to have his sex. So it's like, all right, that's happened. Outrageous. I mean, that was when I, I remember reading that script and being, and I, that was when I was auditioning for the part and going, Oh my, this isn't like any period drama I'd ever read or seen. Laura Carmichael on her character, Lady Edith. Uh, Mary, Edith and and Sybil. And actually for Edith in particular, the middle child. Mary, I guess, was always going to kind of have to take on 
the managing of, that, of Downton. Mm-hmm. Sybil, the youngest child, could go off and do whatever she wanted. Yeah. And you were just always sort of yeah. in the middle, like, where did you fit in? And I feel like now you have so come into your own as a character, Lady Edith. Yeah. And she's representing the modern woman. She is. It's really cool. I think it was a real... I don't know how Julian kind of made those choices for her, but I felt like she would have been like the most traditional of all of them if it had worked out that way. Like there was something about her that she felt like she would have happily married and run an estate and that's what she thought she should do. But it didn't work out for her in that way and so she sort of forced her to get out there and find a path for herself that didn't involve marrying a a rich guy. And I think the war did that for these women as well, which I think... You know, I felt like I knew that of my grandmas, you know, of their generation in the Second World War, even that having something to do in that way just made them so brave and live these really exciting lives. I think their mothers hadn't done in the same way that they did. You know, they had these adventures because they lived through the war when they were given opportunities to work. And I think you saw that with the girls, that it changed them. They were no longer just going to sit around the castle. They had a chance to be useful and that feels great. Yeah, you're right. In series two, quite literally, the outside world came into Downton. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you talk about your grandmothers Mm -hmm. like and what they experienced. Yeah. Because what was expected of them and then life happens. Yes. And your thinking completely changes. Completely. And you can no longer be sort of, you know, held in this sort of, you know, in the castle that they lived in. They were confronted with real life and the soldiers who were convalescing at Downton. It was really, it was in their homes and so they were bound to be changed by that. Don't look so bewildered. It's simple. I will drive the tractor. Well, can you do that? Absolutely. Now we've heard from the women upstairs, but what was life like for the women downstairs? These ladies weren't paying calls and getting dressed up for dinner. They were making the dinner and making upstairs life function. One of those is Beryl Patmore, Downton Abbey's cook and one of the most loved characters. Here's Leslie Nichols, who plays our Mrs Patmore. There is such purpose to the lives of the women downstairs. That's right. You are a woman with a job, Mm -hmm. with a purpose. And they're strong women, which is brilliant. There's a lot of strong women in this show. And also, I remember Alistair saying at the beginning, don't pity these people. They're doing very well, thank you very much. They've got good jobs. You know, they're looked after, they have their accommodation, their food. And also they have a job with some respect attached. And they have pride. Mrs Patmore is so proud. Totally. But also Mrs Patmore, Daisy... I mean, oh, her character is so heartbreaking and so it just fills your heart with so many ways because she doesn't have a family. Mrs. Patmore becomes her family. Mm -hmm. Like you say, you mother her and you nurture her. Mm -hmm. But she has aspirations. You know, some of the other characters we know want to do this, that and the others and see social mobility. But your character is content. Or is she? I don't know. We're going to see something different happen in the film. Um, Yes, you will see something different happen in the film. Yes, you will. Which I won't say because it'll spoil it. Alistair Bruce, who Leslie just mentioned, is the historical advisor for Downton Abbey. Most days you'll find him on set instructing, advising and correcting the minuscule details that make Downton look and feel so authentic. His knowledge is vast and I wanted to know his interpretation of what life for women at this time would have been like. The period of Downton Abbey so far hasn't actually seen much of a change in the role of women. 
they had ceased to be chattels before we started filming, thank goodness. But the overhang of that attitude in a patriarchal society to women endured pretty much through it all. But in the Downton Abbey story, we do see three daughters to the Earl who are, in their own way, very, very interesting. We lose one, but the other two are stridently able to cut out their own direction. And yet you're always seeing it within the constraints of their need to be married, because it is through their presence in life with a man who is their husband that they truly get released from the moral expectation of them to remain within the nest and protected by their parents. And that went on right into the 50s, to be honest. But the truth is that Julian takes us to some interesting places by making particularly Edith into quite an adventurous woman who's got great ability and great, great passions. And she's also terribly enthusiastic for her own change and in that she becomes a writer, something which was almost frowned upon. I mean, plenty of female writers used to use male names in order to be more accepted in the publication space. So all of this change is a challenge. If you're a, a woman who seeks to be stridently political, demonstratively successful at business, or to push the boundaries of expectation and time, this is not an easy time to live. And yet Julian has taken us to the edge with both Mary and Edith. And I think we also see it in the staff below stairs. You know, their expectations and aspirations are there. But when we watch the women below stairs and we juxtapose them with the men, we see the men beautifully dressed in tailcoats and boiled shirts and high collars, and then put them beside those like Daisy who are scrubbing from first thing in the morning till last thing at night. And you do understand what the expectation was of that society, that men should look beautiful and not do much. And women should do all the hard work and not be seen because they were wearing scruffy clothes. And that tells us something about, again, the great social change that Downton Abbey is trying to chart us through. It's trying to reintroduce ourselves with, yes, a very organised and stable society where everybody, everybody from the monarch right down to the person who was preparing the cauldrons of flame to make the steel required uh, for the great ships of the Royal Navy. All of them had a place. Now we're free of all that, in a way, but people have to struggle to achieve a position and a status which, in a sense, was presented to them, be they at the top or at the bottom in the oldest. And I think that this realisation that women had to be vanguards of their own ambitions in a way that today I think society does at least give them the chance, which simply didn't exist, even for the aristocratic daughters of Lord and Lady Grantham. Another critical theme is the subject of homosexuality, best portrayed by the character Thomas Barrow, who did very well for himself because he's now butler at Downton. I've never seen anything like it. It's the first time for everything. I know, but 
Kommandant zu möchten. The scene you just heard was from the last movie where Barrow enters an underground illegal gay club. I think it's one of the best scenes in the film and I spoke about it to Michelle Dockery and Julian Fellows. I mean, he's my favourite character, Barrow. Like, if I could play anyone, anyone else in it, it would be Barrow. Go on, tell <laughs> I just love him. I love his journey. I love where he started and where he's, you know, how far he's come. And, of course, this film is... I mean, you know, without giving too much away, there's such a beautiful story for him, like there are for all the characters. I mean, there's another thing that Julian is incredible at. But particularly Barrow, I feel like in these two films, his character has, you know, is stepping into this new world and he is beginning to... I mean, I shouldn't really speak for the actor, but for Rob, James Collier, but I've loved seeing that journey with him and... It's just, you know, I never really saw anything, any storylines like that in period dramas before. And he's such a great actor, Rob. I just think he's... And he's so different in real life, you know. He's just... And that pout and... Smoking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's the only one that smokes in it now. But he's just brilliant. You're right, because in the movie, the previous movie, that underground club scene... I love that scene. I loved yeah. it so much, where the doors open and he's stepping... And it makes me emotional thinking yeah, about stepping it. stepping into that world that he didn't realise existed. And, and for the first time, yeah. he's accepted somewhere. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so powerful. But what's so wonderful is they know, the family know, and they accept him. I think that's what's so beautiful about the relationships between above and below stairs, that they know each other so well. Julian Fellows. Thomas's story and the arc of how he develops, but, you know, essentially living as a gay man at this time, so important to see that on screen. It was very emotional when he went and discovered that underground club. It was a very moving moment, actually. For, sure, for... but then they're all arrested. Yes. You know, I mean, the thing is... Being gay, really, until the 60s, was very, very difficult. Mm. And to try and organise a life that wasn't a semi-denial of your own identity took great bravery. And, I mean, I think we have shown that to a whole generation who didn't really fully understand that. I mean, I used to get letters saying, are you seriously telling me it was illegal until the 60s? I don't believe you. And you write back and you say, well, I'm afraid I can give you the date when it ceased to be illegal because I was at school and I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth reminding people of that. Definitely. So how do you decide which um, which storylines are important and, you know, which historical moments? I mean, it's a big question, but really, you know, how do you make the decision, right, I'm going to put that in and this is where we're going to be and these are the storylines I'm going to tell? Well, I think, Thomas, you see, one thing I do like to do is I like to create a character that certain people all over the world who were watching, well, of course, in those days, I didn't know it was all over the world. I thought it was all over England. But they're watching it and they think, I could never like someone like that. Yeah. I don't want them to go to prison, but I could never like someone like that. And then during the process of the series, you explain 
why they are who they are. You explain why Thomas is suspicious and defensive, because he has much to be defensive about. Mm. And, you know, there was the footman who tried to get him arrested and reported him to the police. And what I would hope is that during a plot line like that one, someone is going to take just a slightly different view. Sure. And that, I think, is what we're all striving for, really. Join me next time for episode eight, Above Stairs, where I'll be interrogating the characters from upstairs with the people who bring them to life. Moving through the 20s, I think it always gets more exciting because the hemlines come up a bit, you get a bit more masculine tailoring. I'm wearing trousers one point. This is a Something Else production. Make sure you follow Downton Abbey, the official podcast, so you never miss an episode. And do not miss the film Downton Abbey, A New Era, only in cinemas this spring.